you to be praying for the Lord's direction as far as our series and the things that we're going to be looking at in the Scripture in the days ahead. About six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago now, I began to get a movement in my heart for a particular series, and I've done some preliminary work with that. And I'm about 95% sure that this is the series that the Lord would have us to be doing. And uh, that series, I'm going to tell you what it is, but I'm going to ask that you not hold me to it because there's still 5% left of doubt there. But if the Lord continues to lead, I think that perhaps around the new year, Uh, we will begin a series in the book of Matthew. I have been in the book of Matthew, as I've said, for about six to eight weeks doing preliminary work and uh, several things in there, several perspectives and that have really gripped my heart that I think will do us well. In the meantime, I'm thinking about a mini-series flowing out of that book of Matthew And then, of course, we'll have uh, Christmas is coming up, believe it or not. I'm not saying that to preempt all the commercials that you're going to get hit with. I'm just saying that it's out there, and uh, we'll have our Christmas series there for that. So uh, this week, I'm going to try to nail down those things, and so if you'd be praying for that, I'd be greatly indebted unto you. The book of John, chapter 10 I'm going to read this morning verses 22 through 32, and we have one more message in this series, but John chapter 10 verse 22. Now before I read, I want you to note that the preaching and teaching that Jesus had given over the occasion of the blind man was complete at the end of verse 21. So if you're looking for the whole conversation about what went on in that particular event, you would start in John chapter 9 and verse 1, and you would go all the way down to chapter 10 and verse 21. We know that because in verse 22 it says, and it was at Jerusalem at the feast, and it was winter. So there's an interlude, there's some time between verses 21 and 22 there. I don't think it's a long time, and the reason why I say that is because Jesus is going to allude back to something that he had already taught them earlier. But let's begin reading John 10, verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long do you make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, 
<clears throat> neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. We've seen our Lord's denunciation of the Pharisees. In fact, He has called them thieves and robbers. We see that in chapter 10 and verse 1. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the leaders of that day, the shepherds of that nation, they had entered into the sheepfold not through the door, but through some other way. In fact, we know from John chapter 3 that Nicodemus did not even understand that you must be, you must be born again. And here was a learned, prominent chief ruler who didn't even understand the very fundamental on how to enter into the door of the sheepfold. These people were thieves and robbers. He's going to say it again in verse 8. <clears throat> All that ever came before me, in other words, right there in his presence, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. He's going to say it again in verse 10. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. In contrast to the thieves and robbers, I am come that, I'm, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And of course, in reading in verse 10, we normally think of the devil. And it is true of the devil. He is a thief and a robber. But in the context, he's talking about the children of the devil. That is, the Pharisees who were unbelieving there before him. And Jesus tells them and the people who were there publicly around him, that he was the door, and he is the only door. <clears throat> Verse 7, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. He repeats it in verse 9, I am the door. A door is an entryway. No man comes unto the Father but by the door. By me, he would say later on in John chapter 14. He is the only entryway. And folks, the entryway isn't the church. The entryway isn't our works. The entryway isn't our good life. The entryway is not baptism. The entryway is Him. Now thanks be to God, if you're in a New Testament church, they are pointing you to the door. But He is the only door. And folks, one of the reasons why he's the only door is because he is the good shepherd. And that emphasis there, I believe, is on the word good. They were shepherds, meaning they were rulers over the people. But they were not a good shepherd. They were thieves and robbers. 
And of course, he mentions that twice, just like he mentions the door twice. He mentions him being the good shepherd twice. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. What makes a good shepherd was certainly his being, who he is, but in this context, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his what? He gives his life for the sheep. That's good. The thieves and the robbers, they weren't giving their lives for anything. They were using the sheep. They were gleaning from the sheep. They were taking from the sheep. They were withholding from the sheep. Words of eternal life. They were only there for self-profit. Christ did not come for self-profit. He came to give His life. He is the Good Shepherd. He mentions it again in verse 14. I am the Good Shepherd. Here's a characteristic. I know my sheep and am known of mine. And he'll go on in verse 15 and talk about the Father knowing him and him knowing the Father and that he's going to lay down his life for the sheep. And brethren, because he is the door, if you would enter in by the door, you would be safe. Safe from what? Well, ultimately, you would be saved from our greatest enemy. And that is death. Condemnation. But literally, you would be saved from anything because the worst thing under this sun, in this sin-cursed world that could ever be brought against a person is the death penalty. And Christ delivers us from that death. He that is in Him will never see death. But He will have eternal life. And He lays down His life. He's that good shepherd. And as I define goodness... If we, we're not going to be like Christ, but if we're going to be a good husband, we've got to lay down our lives. If we're going to be a good wife, we've got to lay down our life. If we're going to be a good child, we've got to lay down our life. If you're going to be a good pastor, you've got to lay down your life. If you're going to be a good statesman, say, what's a statesman? If you're going to be a good politician, you've got to what? Lay down your life. Life is not about me, it's not about my own self-gain, it's not about me saving myself. Because to be conformed into the image of Christ is to be conformed into His love. And His love is sacrificial. His love is cruciform. It takes on the form of a cross. And brethren, here's what's amazing about our Lord. He does this completely voluntarily. You and I are not always that way. Have you ever done something begrudgingly? And the answer to that is, yes. yes. Have you even done something and you kind of had, you know... 
a movement to do it, but you knew it was going to cost you something, but ultimately you might not have done it of your own free will, but you're doing it because that's what's demanded of you at that time. And the answer to that is yes. But our Lord did it completely voluntarily. He says in verse 17, Therefore does my Father love me, because I laid down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the authority to lay it down. And this is amazing. I have the authority to what? To take it up again. Where did he get that authority? It was a commandment from the Father. So folks, when we talk about the Son of God <clears throat> coming down from heaven and saying, Behold, I come in the volume of the book, it is written unto me to do your will, O God, it was completely, 100% voluntarily. No constraint in it at all. Not a constraint from our end, not even a constraint from the Father's end, completely voluntarily. That's love. That is a purity of love, is it not? And folks, that love in which Christ loves us is the same purity of love in which the Father loves the Son. He loves us with that purity. Now the result of this, as it always is, is that the world was divided in their opinion about this. You'll see that in verse 19. <clears throat> there was a division, therefore, note this word, again. Is the word of Christ divisive? It is divisive, not among the sheep, but among the world and the religious of the world. There was a division, and some of them were saying, verse 20, well, he has a devil, he's insane. Why are you listening to him? But other people were saying, you know what? This isn't how the devil speaks. Can the devil open the eyes of the blind? What are they talking about? They're talking about chapter 9. They're talking about this man who was born blind and Christ healed him. Could a devil do that? And they were divided and they were perplexed and they were confused about this. Now folks, in verses 22 through 24, <clears throat> we're going to see the absolute darkness of unbelief. We know from John chapter 9 that the Pharisees did not believe that the blind man had been healed. They were wanting to know from his parents, how did this happen? They were wanting to know, if we put it in today's vernacular, what pill did they take? What surgery did they have? What medical doctor did they go to? How did this happen? And it was a direct 
creation of sight for this man. But they did not believe that. They had to find some natural answer for that solution. Does that happen today? Absolutely. And these passages from verses 22 through the end of the chapter occur probably the next day or maybe a couple of days afterwards. And Jesus is walking in the temple and He's walking near, verse 23, the porch of Solomon. Solomon's porch was a covered area within the temple boundaries. So it would have shielded him from what? From the sun. There he is. He's in the temple. He's within that covered area. And it was during what time of the year? It was in the winter months. And what happens when Jesus comes into that porch is that He is aggressively pursued by the Pharisees. You'll see that in verse 24. Then came the Jews round about Him and said to Him, The word roundabout means that they actually encircled him. Why would they encircle him? So that he could not what? He couldn't get away. This wasn't an encirclement because we have a sincere question that we want to ask you. This is an aggressive, hostile encirclement of our Lord. And what they accused our Lord of doing, this is is quite amazing. And folks, I'm doing this to try to paint in your minds what's exactly happening here. They actually (coughs) accused the Lord of playing games with them. You'll see that (coughs) in verse 24. How long do you make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us what? Be clear about this. Be open about this. They thought the Lord was playing games with them and that it was His fault that they had not come to a full persuasion that what He said was really so. Be clear about this. If if you're claiming to be the Messiah, if you're claiming to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, if you're claiming to be the seed that was promised under the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 3.15, if you're that man, well, be clear about it. Don't play games with us. Don't kind of toss us around. Don't mess with our understanding. Just, Just tell us very plainly about this. Because if you would just tell us plainly then we would what? We'd believe you. But the reason why we don't believe is because you're not being very clear about this. They wanted him to speak very boldly and without mystery. And folks, the fact is, that He had already told them that He was the Messiah. Not only had He already told them 
And he had told them, and he had told them, and he had told them. But there was something else that was bearing witness that he was the Messiah. And that was his works, which no other man could do. Are the works plain? Yes or no? Yes. Did he not tell them that he was the Christ? Yes. You think of just one example of him saying this publicly is the woman at the well. Well, I know that when the Christ comes that he'll do this and he'll do this and he'll do this. Jesus just looks at her and says, the one speaking to you, I am, I am. How many times did he say, I am? He told them at the trial when he said, Behold, you'll see the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. Well, if you be the Christ, tell us. Well, he is telling them. He's telling them by quoting Scripture to them. Was he not born in Bethlehem? Were not the Scriptures fulfilled in his life? In other words, folks, he did tell them. And he's going to say that in verses 25 through 30. This is the point. He's going to re-emphasize the fact that he is the Christ and he is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God who has come and taken on human flesh. He's just going to emphasize that again. So verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. Now what was the problem? They didn't believe what he said. He did tell them. And in fact, the blind man had told them. He had told them in our scripture reading in John chapter 5 when he healed the lame man on the Sabbath day. He had given them a whole exposition on this. He had told them at the end of John 5, you search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. But it's those scriptures that are speaking of not the Christ or not the Messiah, not the Son of David, of who? Me. The one speaking to you. I've told you already. The problem is not whether I'm being clear or not. I am being clear about this. The problem is you won't believe what I say. And folks, that really is always the problem, isn't it? When you're talking to people and you give them the words of Christ, you give them who He is, you tell them what He demands of them, if they say that they're a believer, well, they just say, well, I don't understand that. Do they really not understand it? Well, maybe a grain or two, but the question is, as old Mark Twain reportedly said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do. And folks, not only was he plain about it, but the works that he was doing in his Father's name. 
those very works were testimonies. Now remember this. They were testimonies that who He is and what He is saying is what? True. Now folks, it's very important when we talk about those works and the purpose of those works being testimonies, when you read later on when He says, well, the disciples, those who believe in Me, they're going to do works like Mine, even greater works. And it helps us to understand what those works were intended to do. And when those apostles went out, did God give them works? Yes. Did they bear witness, saying to those that are around them, listen to these men? And the answer to that was what? Was yes. The purpose of the works wasn't just to empty the hospitals. It was to give credible witness to what Jesus was saying and that he had the authority to say what he's saying. It was those works that verified what he was saying was absolutely true. Now, brethren, just think about this just for a moment. You just had a blind man get healed. Not a blind man who became blind. He arrived in this world seeing. Maybe a rock hit him in the eye or he had some degenerative disease and he lost his sight. He was born blind. What does that mean? That means for whatever reason, he didn't have the nerves, the ability for the eye to what? To see, to see, to work. And our Lord, pick up your bed, and the man sees, right? He sees at the commandment of Jesus Christ Himself. Now folks, if if that happened, and it kept happening, lame, lame people walk. You remember when the man was lowered down from the roof. And the Bible tells us why He did the miracle. He did the miracle so that the people around Him would know that He has the authority to forgive sins. That was the purpose of the miracle. So He tells the man, remember the purpose? He tells the man, your sins are forgiven. And the man what? He can walk. And of course, everybody's upset about that. They miss the fact the man's walking. They're like, who? You're you're just a human being. How in the world can you claim the prerogative of God and say that you have forgiven this man's sin? The deed was supposed to back up the fact that he had that authority. That when he said, your sins are forgiven, they really were. 
Because, folks, if Jesus Christ, well, let me word it this way, since Jesus Christ kept claiming to be the Messiah, and He kept claiming to be God, those works would not be Folks, why would God, they recognize a man walking, that had to be who? That had to be God. Though later on the Pharisees would say, no, 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 this is the devil. The devil's healing everybody. The devil's giving people sight. And of course our Lord corrects that. That's impossible. If the devil's doing this, then his kingdom is divided. And a kingdom that is divided cannot, it can't stand. He's not going to do that. I'm not saying you can't fake certain things or manipulate certain things. But we're talking about things that were happening day after day after day after day after day. Folks, if this man, listen, I'm going to quote a man you know. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. That blind man recognized that he had to be more than a man because if he didn't come from God, he couldn't have done this. See how the works are testifying. Now follow the testimony. Here's this man, his eyes have been healed But he doesn't know this man. He's not seen him because when Jesus healed him, he went away. So he's not seen him. But he does know the work that Christ did. So that when he is expelled from the temple and Christ comes and sees him and he says, do you believe on the Son of Man? And the guy says, well, I don't know who that person is. And he says, you have both heard him. Had he heard him? He had heard him. And you see him. And immediately the man falls down on his knees. And in that act of falling down on his knees, he's confessing, yes, you are the Son of God. It was the work that gave credibility to what he said. So brethren, here's what we know about these people. Their rejection of Christ, their inability to understand, was not because they didn't have evidence. We have a Bible, do we not? It's not because they don't have evidence. It's because, look at verse 26, it's because you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my what? My sheep hear my voice. 
And folks, to put it in just application for our day, here, here's how it begins to happen. A person who's coming to Christ like that blind man, they will begin to recognize that what you're telling them out of the Bible is what God has said. They'll recognize that you, I'm just put it, that if you're a man, believer, you're confessing Christ, you're giving the gospel and so on, they will come to this conclusion. You're a man of the Word of God. If you're a woman, they'll come to this conclusion. You're, you're a woman of the Word. You're giving to me the words. And that's where the drawing begins. They do have a work of the Holy Spirit illumining the Bible to them to some degree and that gives them an illumination to believe that what you're telling them out of the Bible is true. And they begin to follow. And those words will take them to the point of being regenerated. Just like John chapter 9. Isn't that what happened? The Word of God brought the blind man to the person of the Word. But they were not of his sheep. At least not at this point. And brethren, I think it's important to understand there is, there is an immaturity. There are difficult things in our Bible, are there not? But there are hundreds of verses, hundreds and hundreds of verses that are plain as the day. And I gave you this illustration about my own father who, as far as I know, rejected Christ and died in his sins. I remember quoting to him, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And my father says to me, well, that's your interpretation. I said to my father, that wasn't an interpretation. That was a quote from the Bible. How do you understand it? Silence. He did understand it. And folks, we need to understand that in our dealings with people. A persistent rejection of the Word of God and a persistent rejection of seeing the, His works is an evidence that they are not His sheep. They need to be saved. They need to be regenerated. And folks, the blessing about all this is is that people who hear the voice of Jesus and they begin to obey that voice will be brought to the point of regeneration. 
they will be brought to the point where they will possess eternal life. Look at what it says in verse 28. And I will give them eternal life. Folks, all who come to Christ, He will in no wise do what? Cast out. If that word brings a person to Christ, and they call upon Him in repentance and faith, He gives them, not because of the quality of their calling, not because of how beautiful their prayer was. He gives to them eternal life. And they will never, never, never what? They'll never perish. Neither shall any man, the King James translation has any man, the word man is in italics, it's really anything. No man, no devil, no spirit, no principality, no power, nothing in the universe could ever take them out of whose hand? His own hand. Can you imagine the claim of that? Folks, what would you say if you came to me and you said to me, I am really sorry over my sins, Pastor. And, Pastor, I, I, ju- I, I just want to be saved. And I said to you, I give to you eternal life. And nothing, not even death itself, could ever take you out of my hand. You're secure if you just believe in me. You would say, Hogwash. I can't believe you're claiming that. (laughs) But Jesus is claiming this. This human being that's standing right before their eyes, talking to them, eyeball to eyeball. He's claiming that kind of authority and that kind of power. It is amazing. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, will not allow any thief or robber to take away his sheep. And folks, that's exactly what, excuse me, that's exactly what he's saying here. Because the thief and the robbers come to do what in verse 10? To steal. Do you see that? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Nothing's going to steal a believer out of Christ's hand. Nothing is going to destroy that which is in His hand. Nothing is going to put to death that which is in His hand. You are secure. His hand is around you. His hand is under you. Underneath are the everlasting arms. He is above you. He is ahead of you. He is your rearward. He has encircled you just like these Jews encircled the Son of God but without hostility. What a gift. Folks, it's God Himself 
that is the wall around the sheepfold. <laughs> Believers are in Christ. <clears throat> Nothing ever could impact this. You have a life that is eternal. It has no beginning. It always was. It has no ending. It always will be. The only way we could lose is if God's own life itself would cease to be and someone else would conquer it. Impossible! Impossible. He is the Most High. He's the King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's Lord over the devil. He's Lord over death. He's Lord over everything. Now, can a believer be chastened but not perishing? Can a believer be severely chastened? Yes, but not perishing. And the word never here is a very strong word. It is like never, 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 never. How many nevers do you need? Well, I'm going to tell you, there have been times in my walk I've needed more than one. We'll never perish. Now, brethren, if that's true, and it is, then that means that there are things that are going to try to take you out of His hand. Right? Folks, you wouldn't need protecting unless there was someone to be protected from. There are thieves. And there are robbers. And there are wolves. And there are dangers. There are dangers in the pasture. There's poisonous food out there. There's calls coming from the world. There's the traitor inside of us that is seeking to persuade us away. There are dangers all around us. But the wall that is inside that circle of dangerous things is God Himself. It is Christ Jesus our Lord. And the very fact that He is alive, ever living, to make intercession for us means that we will make it to the end because of His prayer, because of His hand. It is not, the security of our salvation is not based on our understanding of everything God does. It is based on His complete understanding of us. Look at what it says, verse 27. <clears throat> my sheep hear My voice, and I what? I know them. Does He know us? Through and through. Does He know you sin? Does He know to what degree you're not like Him? Answer is, yes. Do we know everything about Him? 
No, but what we do know is saving and keeping. The secret things belong to God, but the things He has revealed belong to us. And therefore, are good. The word pluck here in the King James, I think, is the word snatch in a good portion of your translations. You may want to make a little connection here. You got the word <clears throat> snatch or pluck in verse 28. You got the word snatch or pluck in verse 29. But you also have the same Greek term in verse 12 when it says, and the wolf plucks them. The wolf snatches them. Isn't that what a wolf does? He gets in among the flock, grabs one, and then what does he do? He takes it away while it's still alive. Then he kills it. That's plucking. That's snatching. This cannot happen. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. They know my voice. And the voice of thieves and robbers, they don't know. We are kept. Now remember the purpose of all this is really not to give us security, although it is doing that. The purpose of all this is to say once again what the Jews said He wasn't saying plainly. He was saying, I'm the Christ. My works testify of this. He claimed to have the authority that for His sheep, nothing can take them out of His own hand. Now here comes the plainness. Verse 29, My Father, which gave them to Me, is greater than all, and nothing is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. How can you say this? I and my Father are what? One. Do you hear Him saying it plainly? He's just not coming out and saying, yes, I'm the Christ. He does that in other places. But he's claiming to be the one sent by God to be the son of David, to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic Davidic covenants. He's claiming to be the one that follows in the pattern of Moses. The Father also will not allow any thief or robber to carry away his sheep. He's greater than all and greater than all things. Nothing has the ability, nothing has the power, nothing has the capacity to overcome Him in any shape or form. Well, I know what you're talking about. Jesus is just a man, but He has some sheep like the twelve disciples. And the Father has some sheep like the nation Israel. No, I and my Father are one. I'm talking about the same sheepfold. (laughs) 
when he says that he and the Father are one, he is saying that they are one essence. There's no division between their wills. There's no division between their deeds. There's no division between their actions. There's no division between their thoughts. What the Father thinks, the Son thinks at the exact same moment. What the Father is doing, the Son is doing at the exact same moment. They're what? They're one. And when he said that, the Jews that had encircled him in aggression understood. Did they understand? They understood what he was saying. They understood he was saying, I am God. So did he say it plainly? He did. Their problem wasn't the evidence or a lack of evidence. Their problem wasn't they didn't have the mental capacity to understand the words that he was saying. The problem was their utter rejection and unbelief of what he was saying. Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. We'll read further. Jesus answered, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? In other words, look at my works. They're giving credibility to what I'm saying. And they said to him, verse 33, For a good work we're not stoning you. But for blasphemy. Because that you being a a man, you're making yourself out to be who? God. Did his works witness that he's God? And he told them plainly that he is the Son of God in human flesh. They had the evidence, but they rejected it. First Peter chapter one, verse five gives us a very precious truth that I think Peter got from these verses. The Bible speaks of believers who are kept. You hear that word? Kept by the power of God. There's the hand. Kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. One commentator wrote, unconverted men would kill God Himself 
if they could only get at him. And folks, let me tell you when this happens. This does not happen generally if you just invite them to church. This doesn't happen if you talk about, oh, let me tell you how the Lord healed me, or let me tell you how the Lord kept me in an accident, or let me tell you how the Lord provided money for a bill. They just nod their head and, yes, that's good, that's great. Where their sin nature comes out is when you press the claim. Jesus is God. And folks, if He's God, He gets to tell me what to do. Is that right? Folks, that's the definition of God. God gets to tell us what to do. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. When you start pressing the fact that they're sinful and God is holy and God is in Christ, and you begin to press those two facts, folks, what's going to happen is it's, it's not that, oh, I don't understand what you're saying. They do understand what you're saying because they begin to argue with it. You keep pressing it and that argument will turn into anger. You keep pressing it it could even turn into, I will seek your life. I will make it so you lose your job. I will reproach you and bring an evil report against you to ruin your reputation. I'll kill you with my words. But it's all the same. It's a reaction not so much to you. It's a reaction to what Christ has said. Now folks, the problem isn't, oh, well, that's a few lost people. They'll do that. I guarantee you, based upon the Word of God, that if the church of God today would begin to proclaim the gospel in such a way that men had no wiggle room but to bow their knee, you will see the exact same reaction coming from multitudes of people. Give them food, they're what? Heal the sick, they're they're happy. Relieve their afflictions and discomforts, they're happy. but really get down to the issue. They will turn against you. And they would kill God if He was here. And folks, you know that that's exactly what they did. They put the one who only said good and only did good to death on a tree. Just like it was written. Evil men voluntarily did the determinate will of God for His Son.
but He was raised from the dead. So that if you, please hear me, if you would come to Him, He would give you life. And He would give you a life that is more abundant. You might lose your job. You might lose your health. But what you won't lose is life. And as He was raised from the dead, so believing people will be raised from the dead. It is written, better is a little in the house of the righteous than a multitude of riches in the house of the wicked. Let's bow our heads in prayer.